Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. And there's another traffic jam building outside the biggest US ports, with 26 container ships, on the last count, lined up off the Californian coast, waiting for a parking space at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. We keep coming back to this topic on Stephanomics, not just because we like ships, but also to stay grounded and to remember, in all our highfalutin conversations about the future of money or the digital economy, that most of what we buy in one click doesn't get made in one click and it doesn't get beamed across the world to your doorstep. It comes by ship. Traffic jams outside ports are one consequence. Another, it turns out, is that the Port of London, despite Brexit, is buzzing. Our global supply chains are. Brendan Murray has been down to the docks to investigate. We have that later. We also have a report from our Swiss economy reporter, Catherine Bosley, on why some are not so happy about that breakthrough agreement to charge a minimum corporate tax rate on global companies. But first... Now, President Biden has already made quite an impression on America's public finances in his first months in office. All those multi-trillion dollar spending packages and plans for future tax hikes. But with the hiring and potentially firing decisions he makes in the coming months, he may yet have an even bigger long-term impact on the Federal Reserve. Definitely time to have a chat with two of the most experienced Fed reporters on the planet, let alone at Bloomberg, Craig Torres and Rich Miller. Rich... Quickly set the stage for us. You know, what are are the personnel decisions that President Biden's looking at at the U.S. Central Bank in the next year or so? And why why are they so important? Well, top top of the pops is is, uh, the chairmanship. Uh, Jerome Powell's uh, term, four-year term, expires in February. And uh, Washington WAGs call the the Fed chairman the the second most uh, powerful person in Washington after the president, so you can imagine how important that position is. But it's not just him. There's also the uh, vice chairman of supervision. His post comes up actually before uh, Chairman Powell's. Uh, And then you also have the vice chairman um, who follows monetary policy. And on top of that, there's one empty seat that is yet to be filled. So potentially four of the seven seats are are up for grabs for Biden to uh, to reshape uh, probably one of the most powerful uh, central banks, certainly one of the most powerful central banks in the world and one of the most powerful institutions in the U.S. economy. Craig Torres, people just coming to the, coming to this today might wonder why we're even having the conversation because Jay Powell, the current chairman, is generally felt to have done a good job. So, so why are we even thinking about not reappointing him? Well... There are two progressives on the Senate Banking Committee that matter a lot, uh, Sherrod Brown and Elizabeth Warren. And in recent hearings, they expressed reservations, I guess is the word, about Jay Powell's regulatory record. And what he's done is gone along with Vice Chair of Supervision Randall Quarles. Powell is a believer in kind of the financial system as it is. He's not... um, He's not a big-time innovator, in my opinion. You know, it needs to be rebuilt or fixed in, in, in a way. So people want, especially these progressives, a little bit more restraint, a little bit more um, scrutiny, uh, and a financial system that bends more toward equality. 
And Rich, so there's a, there's that point where people actually want to be shifting policy in a sort of slightly less in favour of Wall Street and more in favour of reform. But there's also, I guess, a kind of classic thing where, you know, Jay Powell is a Republican. You've got Democrats uh, quite keen to have their own people in charge. Uh, what are the other factors that, that Biden is now weighing in thinking about this? Well, well, there certainly is that. I mean, that one cuts both ways because Biden has sort of portrayed himself as a bipartisan, you know, healer of Washington's um, <laughs> frayed uh, politics. So um, he could make a nod in that direction by keeping Powell a Republican in. But I mean, the other thing is, I guess that, you know, for want of a better word, it, uh, other progressives don't think um, Chairman Powell is uh, woke enough. Uh, <laughs> he hasn't been as uh, full-throated as uh, as they'd like about uh what the Fed can do uh, uh, for uh, in reducing income inequality. He hasn't been as full-throated about um, what the Fed can do to uh, counteract uh, high black unemployment. He hasn't been as full-throated about uh, in support of a, a central bank digital currency, which, which some progressives like because uh, it will help the uh, could help the unbanked and the poor who, who, who don't have, uh, you know, financial accounts. So uh, there's a constituency, as Craig said, of, you know, this sort of band of progressives who, who think that uh, he's, he's not been uh, uh, a supportive of what, you know, you might call democratic priorities in his, you know, four years that he's been in office. I guess, Craig, to state the obvious, he's a white man. Uh, Donald Trump, by and large, nominated, didn't always get passed, uh, appointed, but nominated a lot of white men for for the Fed. I guess this, the symbolism um, matters as well. Yes, it does. It's kind of a myth that it's Biden faces one big choice. Actually, he has four choices, and the mix of those choices matter a lot. Feels like quite an important time for U.S. monetary policy, trying to gauge these conflicting impulses. We have transitory inflation. We hope transitory, but quite a lot of inflation uh, seemingly coming down the track. But we also have potentially another round of, of, of COVID. I mean, should the should the financial market, should all of us be, be worried about a shift in the Fed leadership at this kind of time, Rich? I, I think it is a very, very tricky time. And um, uh, that's one thing, you arguably, that Powell has going for him. You don't, you know, you don't change horses while you're in the middle of a raging stream. The one person that Craig didn't mention that's probably the leading candidate for the chair, if if Powell doesn't get it, is uh, Lael Brainerd, who's mm. who's uh, who's or, who's on the Fed and is kind of a known quantity to the markets, and has voted uh, against a number of the um, uh, measures uh, to ease bank regulation that Powell and Quarles, the vice chair, supported. So she's kind of seen as the um, leading candidate other than Powell to get the, uh, the the chairman's post. And seeing as she's kind of a known quantity, the markets, it wouldn't probably be too risky to, you know, uh, appoint her instead of Powell, even though she's seen as someone who'd be a little less, a uh, little more dovish, a little less uh, wary about uh, inflation risk. But arguably, if you if you came with somebody who wasn't quite as well known to the markets, and who might not have a you know a monetary policy background, you might have um, more trouble. It is true that she's known for being more dovish, but from where the Fed currently is, it's right. quite hard to think how how you could be more dovish. I mean, they're still they at least for now uh, still have this extraordinarily loose policy and are very very uh, uh, dedicated to to holding it despite these um, quite sort of 
remarkable uh, inflation numbers we've had over the last few months. Okay, so I'm going to put you on the spot, both of you, and ask you, seasoned observers as you are of the Washington political scene, what do you think is going to happen? Where do you think he's going to end up? Craig first. So I'm going to be provocative and say perhaps we should expect an upset here and that they go with Lael Brainerd and they reconstruct the board. It looks uh, more democratic and more blue and more oriented toward the big goals of the Biden program. Rich, I'll I'll take the other on that one. I'll take the. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I think Powell might as well. Powell gets it. <laughs> and Powell, and then who would you still say that the other two will be? Well, uh, no, I mean, I agree with Craig in that in the sense that then then uh, the president has to make some nods to uh, the progressives in in getting someone, and and also to uh, diversity. So I mean, one one name that's been mentioned is uh, you know Raphael Bostic, who's the African-American uh, black president of uh, uh, the Atlanta Fed as maybe the vice chair or um, um, uh, and then uh, Lisa Cook, uh, uh, a black uh, economist, uh, has also been mentioned as for uh, as a leading candidate for the open post. I mentioned I mentioned there was an open post on the Fed. So, yeah, he'd, ha- he'd have to balance out, you know, uh, other interests with the other other positions. And that's why. If Powell gets it, you know, you really have to watch what, you know, the, the, the other positions, especially carefully. Well, we certainly had a reminder that these decisions are always political, even though the Federal Reserve does try and stay above the fray the rest of the time. And we have you on record, both of you, uh, telling us what's going to happen. And we will surely have you back when we find out uh, who was right. Or maybe you were all wrong. Uh, but thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. You might remember we started the year with the chaos at the port of Dover after France closed its borders to UK freight traffic. Our reporter Lizzie Burden interviewed East European drivers sitting in their cabs living on biscuits, wondering if they were going to get home for Christmas. And what with Brexit and Covid and Boris Johnson, there's been plenty of chaos to go around in the UK over the past year or two, but some things are going right. And surprisingly, perhaps, the port of London is one of them. Here's Brendan Murray. In the heart of London's financial district, a yellow and red boat run by the delivery giant DHL travels up and down the River Thames every day with packages from all over the world. 20 miles downstream, it's just another workday for Catherine Spain, whose job as a senior harbourmaster with the Port of London is ensuring goods like these never stop flowing into a British economy hard hit by the pandemic. The day at the office varies so much from day to day. Um, I mean, ships are coming in from all over the world, um, from the other side of the world, you know, China, direct to, to London Gateway. We have aggregate vessels coming in from the North Sea dredging ga- grounds to, to the terminals, um, you know, stuff coming in a lot from Northern Europe. Um, but it could come in from absolutely anywhere. What Spain and her colleagues are witnessing is a revival of commercial traffic along the Thames, once the maritime centre of the world. London's port handled more cargo than any of its UK rivals last year, the first time that's happened in two decades. It's a sprawling complex that includes a major container terminal called the DP World Gateway, 
as well as the historic Tilbury docks, which are used for cruise ships and other cargo. The pandemic, it seems, brought out the online shopper in all of us and served as a reminder that people still buy a lot of physical stuff, even in the digital economy. That's been a big lift in London's efforts to be a bustling crossroads for trade, says Robin Mortimer, the CEO of the Port of London Authority. So you can sort of see, you know, that whole 2000 year journey from a, a tiny little Roman port right in the centre of London now to, you know, a huge um, globally competitive container terminal um, out in the, es in the estuary. Um, now, one of the interesting things is that because so much of the, the infrastructure of the Port of London has moved out of the, the main populated capital city, there is a sort of perception that the Port of London is um, something of the past. Um, and it's a little bit out of sight, out of mind, I think, for people. London's story as a trading city has taken a number of turns over the centuries. 20 miles downriver from London, Tilbury's docks have been a mainstay for 135 years, launching ships across the British Empire and welcoming generations of immigrants to England's shores. So the um, peak of trade of the city of London was both in the 1930s and the 1960s, so either side of the Second World War. That's author Peter Stone. In the Second World War, the Germans, they, they, they understood full well that the port of London was key to the British economy. So therefore, it became a big target at that time. Not only was it um, an economic target, but it was very easy to spot from the air for bombers because, you know, London could have a blackout during the Blitz, so the pilots couldn't see where the buildings were, but they could see um, the water with the, the moon shining off of it, and so they, therefore they could, they could target the docks. So amazingly, the docks carried on working all through the Blitz, all through the war. They just carried on, night and day, even with bombs dropping around. Fast forward to this year, and you see warehouses and logistics depots springing up along the riverbank southeast of the city. The Port Authority is buying up land and old docks to meet the demand, and it plans to develop London's first shipyard in a century. Bookings for cruise ship voyages from Tilbury are picking up again, and just across the river, Amazon is opening a distribution center employing more than 1,200 workers. And it's not just commerce that's returning. Locals are hungry for outdoor recreation like kayaking and paddleboarding. But the biggest opportunities are London's links to the global economy, a big question mark after the UK's split from the European Union this year. Such links bring great potential, but there's also the risk of disruptions, like the ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal earlier this year. Charles Hammond, the group chief executive of Fourth Ports, which operates Tilbury, says Brexit and the pandemic have refocused attention on London as a vital gateway for global trade. I think it's a good thing that people are reminded of the fundamental importance of trade and supply chains to a modern economy. And I think given the pandemic, given other hiccups like Suez, people are no longer taking that for granted. And I think are understanding the role that essential workers, essential facilities play in doing that. So I think in the pandemic, a lot of things that were maybe largely taken for granted are now much more appreciated and I'd like to think ports are one of those facilities. Finally, you know we believe in balanced reporting on this podcast but I fear we may not have been entirely balanced in our reporting of the big tax agreement hammered out among G7 finance ministers last month. 
we may have given the impression that companies being forced to pay a minimum tax rate on their profits, however cleverly they organise their affairs, was an entirely positive development. President Biden and many European leaders would tend to think so. They're hoping to get precious new revenues out of this for infrastructure and education. But as always, there is another side to the story, and you're likely to hear it most often in the corridors of Dublin and Zurich. Here's our Europe economy reporter and deputy bureau chief in Zurich, Catherine Bosley. Finance ministers representing the world's 20 biggest economies broke into a plaza at their progress on establishing a global minimum corporate tax rate of 15%. Sitting in their meeting in Venice this month as an observer, Swiss finance minister Willy Maurer didn't join in the clapping. Countries like Switzerland and Ireland are watching the US-led international push with consternation because they could be the losers. Right now, Ireland's levy for companies is 12.5%, and one in five workers is employed directly or indirectly by foreign multinationals. Last year, levies on the 10 biggest companies accounted for half of all net corporate tax receipts in the country. Finance Minister Pascal Donahoe says his country must now brace for a hit of 2 billion euros to corporate tax income per year by 2025 about 4% of Ireland's annual tax receipts. I mean, if the minimum tax is introduced as envisaged by, you know, the G7, the G20 and the OECD's inclusive framework, if it really is introduced in that way, this is a real massive change to the international tax system. Michael Devera, director of the Oxford University Centre for Business Taxation. I don't think we can really underestimate how big a change it is. It really makes a difference to minimum tax rates around the world. Officials in Switzerland, which had to give up banking secrecy for offshore accounts in the face of U.S. pressure a decade ago, are concerned they'll lose out on money they need to maintain infrastructure. Finance Minister Maurer says as many as 4,000 companies could be affected by the global reform. He's declined to put a price tag on the damage. A city that embodies Switzerland's reliance on multinational corporations is Basel, home to some of the world's biggest drug companies, Roche and Novartis. There's also Lanza, which produces Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine. Before the pandemic struck, levies on corporate profits constituted nearly a quarter of the municipality's tax revenue. Also, vielleicht muss man sagen, das Geld ist das Money is the one thing. And the other thing, which is probably much more important for us, are the jobs. These aren't letterbox companies. They're companies that generate lots of jobs here and people work there. So we don't have any interest in a big company leaving. That was Tanja Zoland, finance director of the city of Basel. The global tax accord with its 15% minimum rate, which is running under the auspices of the OECD, is on track to be finalized at the G20 summit in Rome in October, with the new provisions coming into force in 2023. But there are still lots of details to be hammered out, including what sort of tax deductions might be granted. Hungary, Estonia, and Ireland are also challenging the proposals, with Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban calling the plan absurd. The opposition of the three countries, who together account for just 3.6% of the EU's population, is significant. 
a unanimous decision among all the bloc's countries may be needed to craft a legal directive for the EU to adopt the reform. Here's Mark Redmond, CEO of American Chamber of Commerce, Ireland. We're talking now at the end of July, right? And there's a lot of road to travel between now and the planned, if you will, deadline in October for the OECD to finally uh, sort out all the open questions. Uh, and my, our understanding is there are a lot of open questions. There is a lot of work to be done at OECD level to get to an agreement. Switzerland has chosen the path of least resistance and is going along with the OECD's tax plan. Informal proposals on how to keep the country attractive have ranged from carbon tax credits or offsets for R&D investments to lowering individuals' social insurance contributions. In the famously low-tax canton, or state, of Zug, home to commodities giant Glencore, budget master Heinz Tendler is relaxed about the change. He says it's best to treat the reform like an opportunity. One can say no. One can criticize it. One can oppose it. But the question is, what good is that? It's no good. At the end of the day, we're in this vortex. We have to go with it and seize opportunities and not say no. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and President Biden have hailed the global tax deal as the end of a damaging global race to the bottom in corporate taxes. That may be true. But as you raise a glass to that, spare a thought for countries who had bet a big chunk of their economy on winning that race. Well, I'm sorry to say that's it for this series of Stephanomics. We're supposed to be off now until October. Though if I talk to anyone exciting before then, you can be sure we'll be putting it on this feed. In the meantime, you can get your fix of insights and news from Bloomberg Economics on the Bloomberg Terminal, website or app, or by subscribing to At Economics on Twitter. This entire series was manfully produced by Magnus Henriksen and the global tax story this week was based on reporting by Morwenna Konyam, Peter Flanagan, Catherine Bosley, Leonard Kenshopper and Claudia Maidler. Special thanks also to Craig Torres, Rich Miller and Brendan Murray. Mike Sasso is executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Enjoy your summer. Listener.